Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbow, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I'm excited to talk to class of 2015's Lupe Blanco, data strategist for Chicago Public Schools. Lupe will share with us the unique path of how her academic curiosity and pursuits in language evolved into interpreting stories revealed in data to best serve student growth. Joining us from the class of 2015 is Lupe Blanco. Lupe, tell us what you do. So I, like you said, a class of 2015, in my current day job, I'm working as a data analyst for Chicago Public Schools, specifically in early childhood. So Lupe, what, tell us about what you did once you left WeGo. What was your, what was your kind of plan? You know, I think right off the bat, graduating high school, and this is going to be a complete 180 from what I'm doing right now, is I was really interested in kind of more of the humanities stuff. And so I studied political science, and I was really focused on that. And then out of nowhere came an interest in language and linguistics, and that's really what my focus became. And from there, there's kind of a little through line of like, working with information, uh, language, and kind of trying to combine humanities and data, which is where I'm at right now. What was the shift from politics to go to the other part? Yeah, so I really liked learning about political science, politics, and like the climate of politics in the United States, but I also just kind of became bitter about how the way things were and just like, I can't deal with this. I don't want to be a policymaker. I'm not so interested in doing like behind the scenes stuff that you could do with that kind of studies and experience. Um, but I was really interested in the communication aspect of political science. So I ended up taking a couple of classes in linguistics. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I like looking at the language, the way that we communicate, um, the storytelling aspect, I guess, a little bit of it. And as I got more and more into that, I kind of became more enmeshed in how you collect the data, um, what information is available to you, how can it be interpreted, um, how can you present it to people to move action in kind of connected to policy and politics, I guess, a little bit actionable items like education policy or just day-to-day -day stuff too. Like you really don't think about communication and language, but you know, everyone does it. And so yeah, that kind of led my, me. <laughs> it's my, it's my favorite kind of metaphor that can be used so many different ways, which is the fish didn't discover water yet. Right. So, but yeah. it's all around, 
right? So, mm-hmm. um, so tell me about your time at UIC. So that's when you probably began your focus more so on linguistics. And I was wondering if we can maybe drill down a little bit more on what it is that's so fascinating about linguistics. Because I, I find linguistics absolutely fascinating uh, as well. If I had three more brains, I would I would dedicate one just to understand more of it. So um, what was it that really kind of captured you about linguistics once you you made that shift? Yeah, so in with the linguistics, and this isn't um, actually, this isn't like on my LinkedIn or public or anything, but I started off at U of I for a hot second. Um, and then did an intercampus transfer, and they have a pretty strong linguistics program there. Uh, the one reason that I kind of shifted from there was because there was a second language requirement, and I just could not for the life of me pick up um, a non-Indo-European language. So I went over to UIC, which had a Hispanic linguistics program, um, so I could really focus on the linguistics of the Spanish language. and. I just became interested in, and this is another metaphor um, that I think kind of explains it, is that anyone can drive a car, but you don't have to be a mechanic to have your driver's license. And I really became interested in becoming like a mechanic of language and understanding histories of it, development. And so that's kind of where it was. And also my own personal experiences being English, Spanish, bilingual. I'm like, why does my brain work the way it does? Um, And do other people's brains work the same way when it comes to language? And just on that personal experience, for example, I think in English, that's my default. uh, But for my siblings, their default is Spanish. But we, all three of us like grew up here. And I'm like, okay, why? How, How did that happen? And so that's where I really dug in with my professors. I had a mentor with Dr. Kim Patowski, who I think is just the most awesome person ever. If anyone's interested in UIC in the Spanish program, you should definitely check out her work and did a little bit of work in labs and stuff like that. And that's where I kind of picked up on the data analysis stuff. And that's what really kind of drove me further into the more analytical side of things. You know, let's let's. I don't want to get away from that mechanic <laughs> uh, metaphor because it's so interesting. What were some of the things that were applicable in you in sticking with that car as language uh, metaphor? Like, what are some of the things that? Because I mean, I, I, I've I've learned. I've also have read a little bit of linguistics, and it's fascinating that we kind of are able to see our world through the metaphors that we use in our language. So what a metaphor that might be used in English may not be the same uh, in Spanish or French or anything else. And that might actually, you know, paint the way in which you see reality. I was wondering what were some of the ways, what were some of the mm-hmm. really cool stories uh, to kind of stick with that metaphor as car as, uh, or, or a linguistic as a mechanic of reality mm-hmm. in such a way? Actually, it's so interesting that you mentioned that about how, like the way that we speak we're speaking our reality into its existence because one of the big, one of my first linguistics classes, which was actually an anthropology class, but one of the things was um, how people describe color and how some languages have hundreds, tens, hundreds, thousands of different ways to describe blue or turquoise. 
And then it, you can also break it down by like, are the female speakers the ones that have a richer vocabulary for this color? Or do men have that? Or younger people or older people? So that was more of like the sociolinguist, that's a sociolinguistic example. And a lot of the stuff that, w- that I was interested in was the, the same way, like um, who's innovating language or who are we seeing that has these language changes because language is constantly evolving. Um, so just that kind of thing was really interesting to me and kind of the, the again, the sociolinguistic aspect of it that language and reality is mutually constituting identity and identity politics where the professor is like am I a woman because I sit this way or do I sit this way because I'm a woman and that kind of is another metaphor that speaks to that idea of um is the way the world is because it is or because that's how we're describing it and how we're creating it or even like more basic um why is a table called a table there's no logic to it, right? No, right. I mean, how did that assembly? <laughs> oh, right, because mm-hmm. how did that assembly of sounds become what I come to understand about what a table is? The essence of it having minimally three legs or four legs, but I still—that's mm-hmm. still a table as my my ear hears it and then interprets that in reality. It, it reminds me. Of, mm-hmm. I remember reading about a tribe. Uh, in South America called the Piraha. And we may have talked Mm -hmm. about this in AP years ago where they do not have left or right in their language, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's like a, that's a big research area too, like about like directionality. Right. And so they orient their, their reality based upon where the, Amazon River is, right? So, yes. so they develop mm-hmm. a whole construct of how they view reality based on the orientation of where the river is, because that's the most important, you know, piece of geography that dictates the things that they do in their life. So yeah, so it's because it, it's kind of like a very much a chicken or egg kind of uh-huh. exercise. Yeah. So did you what was some of the, the lab work that you did uh with that? A lot of the work that I did in undergraduate was um bilingualism and trying to understand um, code switching. That was really my focus. Like what specifically, in what spaces, what situations, um, is it thematically where bilinguals are doing code switching or they're borrowing words and adapting it to their native language? And I did that with um, Mexican Puerto Ricans in the Chicagoland area. That was one study that I helped out with. Um, and then the other one was with Basque Spanish bilinguals. Um, and that one was, uh, I was more like the data jockey on that one where I was just like typing in information for um, the PhD candidate I was helping out. But trying to understand like what's triggering, I guess, very high level understanding what's triggering English Spanish bilinguals or Basque Spanish bilinguals to switch was one of the big things and the why of it really got into like the cultural or more societal aspects like is it based on their identity is it based on who they're talking to or you know certain topics they're more willing to code switch they feel more comfortable 
And so that kind of That's led me cool. to this. <laughs> Were there any consistencies in, in the, between the two cultures? I mean, if one is more maybe European based where the other one might be more uh, South American or Caribbean in that, like, was there any kind of consistency in the code switching cues or triggers? Um, I think so. There are like grammatical rules to code switching. Um, but in terms of like cues, like themes or people, people tended to code switch more naturally when they were talking to someone that they were like familiar or close with. Um, so, you know, like friends or family, they wouldn't necessarily code switch like at school with the Spanish teacher or, you know, um, maybe with like older relatives where there's like a level of respect or, you know, the power dynamic is a little bit different. Because I wonder too, as a data in your burgeoning kind of fascination with data, having to almost tag each one of those variables must've been uh, challenging. Yes, definitely. Um, I think the project, the research was kind of in its earlier stages when I was helping out with it. So we were kind of like high level, tagging everything and um, building out the corpus in that way. So it would be like, oh, were they talking about, were the topics at hand about like their family life or work or education, you know, kind of grouping it that way. And hopefully it's gotten more sophisticated because I know the principal researcher on the project is still continuing the work. But yes, a lot, a lot of information in the metadata of it that you wouldn't necessarily think about, but surprisingly useful to advance the research. Did you have a, a capstone project for that Hispanic linguistics degree? Was there like a, a thesis project or a senior project that you had to complete for that? No, actually. Um, for undergraduate, it was pretty straightforward. Just do my final papers, which I mean, I guess for me was kind of like the capstones because a lot of my work was I didn't have like homework day to day in undergraduate. So like doing the final research papers, we're talking like 20 to 30 pages, page papers at the end of the semester. Um, yeah, so I did accumulate like a body of writing, but nothing yeah. capstone until I um, went over to my graduate program and finished that up. So it looks like you also had some really cool internships. You were a public policy intern, uh, for the city of Chicago. Then you did some, uh, work for, uh, the, the state department. Um, could you talk about those experiences? Yeah, sure. I think, um, I'll just touch on the, the public policy intern really quick. Cause that one was like a little bit more brief. And it was super chaotic to be completely frank. Um, that one was working in the office of the city of Chicago. And I was working with the, um, this was still when I was interested in like political science and politics. Um, and this was in the rollout of the of a, of a program that the city of Chicago has where you can get sort of an identification card if you live in Chicago, which um, you don't, think of ID as something that you're very privileged to have. Um, but for undocumented individuals or even low-income individuals, it's super handy to have because it allows you to navigate like getting a banking account or public transportation or even accessing the library. So that was kind of what the focus of that was. 
Um, and then the other half, which was influenced by the great experiences that I had in the government simulation at West Chicago, was oh, the look of that. <laughs> was um, they have the uh, oh, what's it called? I forget the name of it, but it's a simulation of city council for students in Chicago public schools. Um, so city of Chicago runs that program and the students get to be um, aldermen for a day and get to see what it's like to be a Chicago alderman. How did that come your way? Was that something that you had to search out or uh, how, how did that, how were you made aware that that was uh, an internship that you can get? I think it was a combination of just like luck and being at the right place at the right time. Cause I was looking for an internship and in the political science department, they did like internship postings and stuff like that. And I saw it and I was interested. I was really interested in the government simulation um, aspect of it and kind of working with kids to have that experience too, because I had had such a great experience um, when I had done my version of it. Um, so yeah, it was pretty felicitous timing, if I do say so. So then what, what would, it looks like you did some work for the state department as well. Was that also a very, like, was that something that you were able to kind of just, uh, get off of a, an internship board or was there other, some type of uh, fortuitous, uh, scenario that, that, that landed in your lap? That was, yeah, that was another internship board posting. So people shouldn't definitely don't discredit that the, the, job board postings. And I think that one I had applied for a, like, it was a rank order to what kind of what department you would be interested in applying. And this was a virtual internship, um, which are now a lot more common, I feel like, especially with these crazy times. Um, but yeah, I, I actually think the one that I ended up with with the State Department was probably my last rank option. Um, and the the person, like my supervisor, I guess, that I ended up reporting to reached out and we did a, a phone interview and they're like, oh, but we know that you put us down, you put down our department as your last option. I'm like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But um, we got, I got along great with them during the interviews. And this was really when I think my, the interest in political science meshed with language because I was covering foreign language reporting specifically in Spanish. Um, so the foreign press centers, which was like the sub agency I was working with would put out like news briefings on whatever uh, initiative the state department had. And then my job was to track down media outlets that would report on it and then provide um the transcripts and sort of like the reporting of how how they reported on the event and how and what were they writing about in the Spanish language. Did that include having to see how that was framed in social media as well or more traditional uh, uh, media spaces? It was both. It was I would I was trying to track down traditional media to see if they were reporting on it and a lot of times especially for the Spanish language ones I felt like it was limited options so it was more social media driven when I got more into it and there was more reporting for me to look into um, just because I think social media 
is a lot more accessible, especially Spanish language social media I found during my time there. And I still feel like it's true. And we're moving more towards that anyways, where social media is the preferred medium, I think. What would be a, a, an example of a story that you would have to track? Like, what what is that? Like, what would be one story? And then what was the process of you having to, like, log that? So uh, there would be situations where the for, foreign press center would do um, maybe a press release or an announcement on, um, like, some sort of federal initiative or something, let's say. Um, or they would do kind of like a... Um, press room type of thing like Jen Psaki does where they're presenting and all the interviewers are in the room asking their questions um and since this was more foreign policy related you would have they would have lines and like reporters uh phone in from all over the world and ask their questions so once you had that information you would have we would have access to the brief of like okay this is what the the foreign press agents or the people that are heading this conference, this is what they're going to be talking about. This is who's going to be present. These are the reporters that are going to be present. And you would kind of just watch or listen in on like the actual event itself and then jot down, okay, was there a Spanish language reporter? Were there multiple? Um, Which agencies were they representing? And then kind of track their reporting down that way. Um, hopefully they would report it in their own agency's social media website or newspaper, what have you. Um, but then I think it's also, I think they also had like akin to the CNN live wire where other reporter, other reporters or outlets can pick up on it. Um, and so you have to track down, we, we would have to track down those too. So not just rep- the reporter themselves, but what other outlets were picking up on it and, keep track of all of that to see that how fun. yeah <laughs> relentless yeah oh so okay so yeah, you yeah. so then you graduate from UIC and then what what were your available options after that point because you do end up going taking uh uh some time to go to uh, grad school at U of C uh I was wondering so what was what were your uh, your next steps after that yeah uh, after graduating, really my goal is to be able to put my degree to use, which was like linguistics. And so I ended up working, grabbing a job as a translator and interpreter um, in education. I was actually in uh, Addison at the District 88, DuPage High School District 88. I don't know if you kind of know where that is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So I worked, I worked there and... This is where my timing actually kind of sucked because I got my position. I started in February of 2020. And then, huh. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and I think I was working in person for maybe four or five weeks. Yeah. Um, and then March 2020 rolls around and um, the, the whole world shut down. And I was working from home, which made the work exponentially more difficult because I had to navigate not only interpret like live interpreting for the community parents and what have you, but then I also had to do that with technology. Um, and so I ended up doing that for like a year 
working remotely interpreting. And during that time, I had applied to grad school just to see if I could get in. I wasn't feeling too confident about myself because I was applying to like analytics programs um, with no analytics background. So I'm like, I don't know if I'm qualified enough to do this because I'm coming from a more humanities driven background. I did okay in statistics, but no one's gonna confuse me for a statistician. Um, so I wasn't feeling too optimistic, but I said, hey, why not? Um, I mean, that's, and one of the, that's oh. a, I'm sorry, that's such a, like a, I mean, how did you kind of make that initial leap? Because I mean, you're, you, as you said, you're, you're more of a, uh, a left brain person or is it the other way around? And then you're making the mm -hmm. switch to the other brain uh, with that. How did you, how did you get the confidence to make that leap? I feel like I was just seeing a lot in the, like the STEM fields, like a lot of perspective in terms of not only jobs, but just the way that the world functions. It was a lot of technology and people are realizing that anecdotal, the anecdotal kind of humanities, I'm using humanities so often, but really that's what it is. Um, but kind of, it's becoming more data-driven and technological in life. Um, in day-to-day, -day, I feel like it's, you know, having the phone, having your Apple Watch, your headphones, everything like that. That's the more technological side of it day-to-day -day in the real life. But then kind of behind the scenes, I was seeing a lot of the work that's being done, even in the research that I had done or the internships that I had been done, it was about compiling information and kind of trying to draw out conclusions from the information that we had and and using that to drive decisions. So for example, with the foreign press centers, me collecting all that data in about how the press conferences were released, that was an, that would end up being used to kind of decide for the future, okay, what kind of press conferences are we going to be holding? How are we going to restructure them to hold interest and to be well-received and that kind of thing? And so I, I saw the need for it there. And so I wanted to get in on it too. Now, when you are in the thick of this uh, master's degree at University of Chicago, was it, were you on campus for this or how much of this was uh, done remotely? It was majority remote. Um, in the first couple of quarters, I think, yeah, the first fall quarter and winter quarter, we were, we had permission to be on campus, but all the classes were still on Zooms, but we could be on campus taking the Zoom classes, which is what I ended up doing just because I wanted to be on campus, get a little bit more of like the actual experience because it was just a one year program. And I really did want to get acclimated to like the school culture. And so, so I how, said, yeah, this is my chance. How intense were, cause you said it was a one year program. So you had to take a stats class. And then when did you then, then kind of roll the actual statistics into something that was more uh, its true application in the program. Yeah. So, so the program, actually what they really threw us into in the beginning was um, learning how to code. That was what? like the first big thing. They're like, 
95% of you guys don't have experience in coding, we're going to throw you into a four-week coding class um, before the semester starts so you can get started on that. Um, and then from there, once we learned how to like encode it and put it into instructions in programming, then we had to uh, relearn statistics. So take that statistics course again and kind of use that information to figure out how can we validate our results for them to hold strong. And so it was, yeah, it was all enmeshed. I think it was part mathematics, part learning how to code, how to manage data and all of that in tandem, in tandem work together to just kind of create our thesis projects, which was um, the, I guess the cherry on top of the program, that's what we had to complete <laughs> to get the uh, degree. And the way that I applied all of that was I wanted to use all of that technological, more, I don't know, like hard-coded, like soft power versus hard power kind of thing um, into my thesis project, which ended up being an analysis of English-Spanish code switching in music and what that tells us about how bilinguals are perceived in society. So how do you begin trapping the data for that? Like, how did you set it up such that you could then uh, create the data sets? That was a whole lot of listening to um, Spanish and English music, just listen for not only English and Spanish in the lyrics, but then also looking up the lyrics to make sure I just wasn't imagining things. Um, and so that ended up being like 500 songs or something like that, where I was able to definitively nail down, yes, this song has English and it has Spanish in it. Um, and because I was looking more into what is the perception or what is the content of the songs as opposed to like the grammaticality of it. It was then taking all of those song lyrics, uh, inputting them into a program that I had sort of uh, created and then pulling out what words are most often, often showing up and in what context they're showing up and what, how can we interpret it? What was your favorite finding uh, of that? I think my personal favorite was how prevalent it is, especially in Pitbull in Pitbull's music. I was honestly really surprised that Pitbull is a, such a code switcher in his music, and it is so popular. <laughs> it's so fun. What a fun project that you could... <laughs> You know, I mean, really, I mean, it's so what's so cool. You say the cherry on top. It really is the synthesis of many years of your learning where you're able to take what you did at UIC and now you're blending your love of music, but then also mm -hmm. uh, applying it to this really cool uh, application uh, and all that. Wow, that must have been so mm -hmm. what a what a labor of love, you know, like to listen <laughs> to just one more follow up question about the mm -hmm. uh, about, about that. Was there any like because it's not necessarily um, something that would be, fall underneath the purview of uh, a sociology class or history or mm -hmm. cultural studies. Was there a parameter on the songs that you selected for this? Or was it like it had to be songs 
that perhaps may have code switching from 2020 from from blank to 2020 how did you how did you know yeah. what was a, a proper sample size so i i had no idea because as far as i know there hasn't been any similar research done in terms of just like looking at the lyrics in of themselves so really i started off with using like my own point of reference of like my music library to see kind of like okay i kind of know that um bad bunny and shakira and and enrique iglesias these kind of artists that i grew up with and i listened to and still listen to um i kind of vaguely remember that they've had crossover success in english and spanish so let's work off of that and kind of create a pseudo network of artists to see like have they collaborated um and if they've collaborated maybe there's more likeliness that they code switched in their songs or cross-referencing top 100 charts in english versus spanish um and i had tried as far as time goes i really tried to look back as in time as far as possible but it was really hard i think yeah. there was like a Willie Nelson song where he collabed with a Latino artist, um, which was the oldest one. I think it was like from the sixties or something like that, but it really, it doesn't really pick up until um, the early aughts. And um, yeah. And my advisor, uh, one of my advisors for the project, um, he was actually super helpful of like suggesting artists from the nineties that would have done it. So Yes, it was it was a lot of like self-referencing among myself and my advisors. And I would ask my friends that I know listen to like reggaeton and more Latin music um, because I tend to listen to more alternative nowadays. So I'm like, do you guys know like any Latino artists that are code switching off the top of your heads and then using that to kind of look into it? So a lot of collection, a lot, a lot of collection. You graduate uh, with your master's degree from UFC. Then, um, then how do you how do you land the job at Chicago Public Schools? And and how did you know that that was going to be the initial right fit for your first job out of grad school? This was again a lot of reaching out to the network and people I know, and just like, do you need a data person that's just starting off that was vaguely interested in music and qualitative data, but can do quantitative data too, sort of. Um, and so, um, CPS has a lot of data positions available. I guess it's one of the, now that I've started, I've found that it's one of the departments that's really kind of picking up and ramping up in terms of like the size of the department of informatics, but also just the scope of what they're doing, um, because you have more of like data strategists, network strategists, data analysts um, who are doing all sorts of different stuff like that. And the thing that really attracted me to the position was that it wasn't just straight numbers and just providing like, oh, X percent of our students are doing this or they're meeting, they're meeting exceeding below their deliverables. It wasn't just that. It was that there was a desire for the data that they had to be used as a form of storytelling to advance the mission of CPS. 
And I think that they recognize that there's value in understanding the context of the information we have and not just throwing out a bunch of numbers that might otherwise be meaningless to its stakeholders. So what, what would a, uh, uh, what, like, for example, what was like the most recent data strategy that you worked on and, and, and applied a, a similar type of narrative structure to it to kind of make it all make sense from like the teacher's instruction and the context of that. And then the, the student's um, formative and summative assessment experience of that. Maybe walk me through a, a scenario. Sure. So we actually just finished up um, our kind of like presentation and analysis of middle of the year data for students. And so one of the things that we really focused on was um, trying to see if the students were meeting or exceeding in different domains. So our domains would be like math, literacy, language, um, social, emotional, and then cognitive. I think those are the big ones. And not just seeing them in isolation of, okay, X number of students were meeting, uh, Y number of students were below, but kind of breaking it out even more and saying, okay, um, who was so close to, who was almost exceeding, who is almost meeting, and those little details, and then kind of taking that in contextually over time because one of the big things especially in the early childhood space is how did the pandemic affect the learning of um, these little kids Um, and surprisingly what we found is that they're bouncing back and we think they're bouncing back because now they're being able to come back in person um, when we compare the information that we had from the remote instruction, which was last year, the scores were not ideal, but they weren't that bad. And now that they're back in person, they're definitely doing much stronger. And we're able to also see um, the, the comparative objectives, because it's a bunch of different objectives. And we can see kind of related objectives of can students understand letters? And if they can understand letters, what does that mean? And how does literacy and language connect? And are those scores similarly high, similarly low, and that kind of thing? Do you have any um, consulting in the um, variables that go into the actual test itself? Like, do you get to look at the question and say, you know, maybe if we tweak the language here, would it have a different interpretation by the student? I mean, or is that done by someone else? You just look at the, the data and someone else actually does with the, the um, actual assessment part of it, or do you kind of work together on that? No, that would be more of our program side that um, sets up like the uh, instruction and how teachers should be doing the things are leading their classrooms we're more of just um i guess we could you'd say it's like more reactive our work and seeing what what did they do what were the results of it should we continue down this path or um what would be can we use what we have now and sort of extrapolate for the future and kind of decide we should tweak 
X, Y, and Z here um, because it didn't work out according to our output. So what, what do you, where do you see yourself in like five, 10 years in, in data strategy or in, in what you do? I'm really interested still in remaining in like education and seeing how we can further the application of data analysis and um, analytics. Um, just because I feel like oftentimes it's so it can you can be you can have tunnel vision I think when it comes to like instruction and I and there are definitely situations where institutions or teachers um, or even departments are very set in doing things the way that they've been done um, and the basis of that is. Uh, anecdotal or reactive based on what um, parents or students are saying. But we also have information that is available that's not neutral because there's always bias uh, in everything we do, but can provide the missing pieces that we might otherwise miss. So I don't know if that will, that means me staying in early childhood. Um, but definitely in education, which I guess kind of to come full circle is still, it's sort of policy. So a little bit political. Kind of, you still, you actually stand, you actually landed in a better spot, you know, in terms of having a, a, a heavier thumb on the scale of what you can do in such a way, which is kind of a cool mm -hmm. irony, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I, yeah. I like what you said there, though, too, I, which is that, you know, like anything, I think it's one of my favorite, again, to use a metaphor, uh, Neil Postman in his book, Teaching as a, sub, a Subversive Activity, he talked about entropy, which is that if institutions or systems do not really bring in new stimulus to evolve, they implode, right? And so yeah. what you described there is so spot on, which is, yeah, you can get tunnel vision and you're not growing. And one way to kind of stay true to that is make sure that as best you can design something is to create a data set that will at least inform you uh, of, of, of options, at least minimally. So I, I really like how, mm -hmm. you, uh, how you said that. You've had so many various different interests, whether it's like <laughs> political science and linguistics, storytelling and data. What are, if for, um, for someone who has a, a curiosity or an itch that needs to get scratched, what would you, what are some like either podcasts or books or articles that you think like, Oh, well, if you want to get your, your beak wet with this, you should, uh, you should uh, read some of these uh, things. What, what would you uh, suggest to like a, a kind of a, a curious uh, inquisitive soul for that? Well, I think just right off the bat, don't like if you think you're more of like an artsy person that wants to get into STEM or vice versa, but and you don't think you're able to just throw that throw that out the window because just because you're more like an English history person, for example, to get super basic, that doesn't mean you're going to be bad at analyzing and mathematics. And if you feel like you're more of a math sciencey person, you can also get into history and English and so it's just about kind of finding your sweet spot specifically like resources I don't know if it's super helpful because it's 
personally tailored, but I've been finding a lot of cool information on TikTok. Um, but I, I, you know, that's an algorithm that's tailored to you. Um, but go out and look for the stuff and TikTok will bring it back to you. <laughs> Their algorithm will bring it back to you. Lupe, this has been so great. I know you kind of gave a little bit of advice there uh, in such a way, but I, I do like kind of formally asking uh, the question as I end the interview, what advice would you give current Wildcats for success? Oh my goodness. What a big question. <laughs> I guess just even if you're mildly interested, just go for it. Um, because the negative repercussions at this point in your life are minimal. The The cost is definitely worth it. If you're talking about cost and benefit, the cost is definitely worth the benefit at this point in time. Like, And yeah, just go for it. You can be afraid to go for it, but do it anyways. Awesome. Lupe, thank you so much. I learned a ton today and, uh, and best of luck with, with everything that you're doing. No, thank you. So great catching up. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search Wego Vox. That's Wego V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at We Go Places Podcast or on Twitter at We Go Places.